Brothers and sisters, let's return to the Gospel of Luke this morning. Uh, We come to Luke chapter 9 in our study of this Gospel together. Luke chapter 9, we'll be looking at the first nine verses of this chapter. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. We've got this group of fishermen tax collectors, others that we now call disciples. They've been traveling with Jesus ever since he called them to follow him back in chapter 6. They've watched him perform miracles. They've listened to him preach and teach. They've sought to understand his parables. And they've talked together about the answers he gave to their endless questions. But the training of the twelve is not yet complete. It's not enough to watch and listen. It's not enough to ponder and discuss. The disciples need practical ministry experience. And so Jesus sends them out on an internship. He sent them out, we're told in verse 2, to proclaim the kingdom of God... And to perform healing. It must have been both an exciting and terrifying time for these disciples. As many of you know, doing something for the first time can be a frightening experience. And I assure you, ministry is no different. Those firsts stay with you. Your first evangelistic encounter. Your first public prayer. Your first experience teaching a Bible study, preaching your first sermon, going out to preach in the streets for the first time, performing your first baptism, wedding, funeral. Those first experiences are often a mixture of excitement and dread. (laughs) Wondering to yourself why you ever agreed to do this. The disciples, no doubt, were filled with all those emotions when Jesus sent them out. 
The apostolic mission was twofold. Jesus sent his disciples out, we're told, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Preaching and healing. So they are sent out to minister to people's bodies as well as their souls. Preaching comes first, as it ought to. The primary calling of the apostles was to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. This was also the primary calling of Jesus himself. Back in chapter 4, when people were clamoring for Jesus to keep healing, he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom, for I was sent for this purpose. This was the apostles' purpose as well, to preach the gospel of God's kingdom. Now, this is something that surprises and encourages me. It surprises me because I know what kind of men the disciples are at this point. And they are not what we would call spiritual giants. They are constantly wavering in their faith. They are always jockeying for a position above one another. And particularly applicable to this ministry, they often don't seem to understand very much. And so the fact that Jesus is sending them out to preach is a bit surprising. But it's also encouraging. It's encouraging because I see a lot of myself in the disciples. Like them, I am often faithless and proud all too often without understanding. And so I'm encouraged that when I see Jesus entrusting the ministry of the kingdom to the disciples, it reminds me that men like the disciples, men like me, are really all he has to work with. People like you too, by the way. I'm reminded that I, too, am a work in progress. The disciples are not now, here in Luke chapter 9, what they would become. Neither am I, and neither are you. God is at work in all of us to move us, little by little, toward being like his son. That's the goal God will one day accomplish that goal, but he hasn't done it yet. So we're told that Jesus sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing, to preach and to heal. But what would they preach exactly? What did the disciples have to say? Well, let's remember these men have been with Jesus for some time now. And so surely, as dense as they were sometimes, they must have picked up a few things. What would they have already learned by this point, which they could have passed on to the people to whom they spoke? The people in these towns and villages that they were going to. Well, they could instruct people in the proper understanding of the law. Because they had picked that up when Jesus would constantly be engaging with the Pharisees. They used to deal with the issue of the Sabbath. 
What does that mean in terms of the law? They could call people to repentance, pleading with them to turn away from their sin. This is something that certainly they would have learned from Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees again, but some of them also learned this from the ministry of John the Baptist. Remember, some of Jesus' disciples had been the disciples of John. And they had heard both John and Jesus preach about the need for repentance. Remember, back in chapter 5, it was the calling of Matthew that led Jesus to declare that he had not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So they knew that. They could declare that. They could teach what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. They learned that from the Beatitudes that Jesus preached from his Sermon on the Plain, as we have it here in Luke. Preached the same Sermon on the Mountain in Matthew, but here in Luke it's the Sermon on the Plain. And and in those Beatitudes he's describing what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. And so from that same Sermon on the Plain, they would have learned that God calls upon us to love our enemies. They certainly could have preached that. Not to judge with unrighteous judgment. They would have learned the importance of extending forgiveness to others while examining our own hearts and lives. They would have remembered the parable about the log and the speck. They had already learned how important It is to ground one's life upon the rock, to receive God's word in the way good soil receives good seed. Now, that's not to say that all they had heard from Jesus had taken root in them and that they were now unfailingly putting all these things into practice. That clearly wasn't the case. And what a relief that is for those who are called to proclaim the word of God today. Understand this. If I waited until the word of God was perfectly manifest in my life before I proclaimed it, I'd never preach again. And if you decided you would not sit under the teaching of the word until you found someone whose life was perfectly in line with that word, you would never again, as long as you live, hear the word of God taught. The word of God comes through broken vessels. If God so chose in every generation, he could have raised up an army of supernaturally sanctified preachers that would perfectly and faithfully live out his word without fail. But he hasn't done that. He's given you me. He's given to his church sinful, weak, dull-witted men who don't come close to loving their Lord as deeply as they ought. The older I get and the longer I walk with Jesus, the better I come to know myself, the less tempted I am to judge and criticize these men who followed Jesus. 
Rather, the more clearly I see that they are me (laughs) and I am them. And the fact that God has called me first to be his and second to serve him in the ministry of the word and his kingdom is his altogether gracious and undeserved gift. Well, all that they have heard from Jesus is what they are now being sent to proclaim. That is how Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God. And his disciples, being trained up to be like their master, are now going out to proclaim what they have heard Jesus proclaim in the past. See, the kingdom of God is not a territory protected by an army or an empire on a map. It's a sovereign dominion of God over the hearts of his people. That's the kingdom of God. That's what you see when you read through the Beatitudes. We went over this when we looked at those passages. When you read through the Beatitudes, whether in Luke or in Matthew, Jesus is not saying you need to be this way in order to be saved. He's saying if you are a citizen of the kingdom, then these are the things that will characterize your life. Because this is what the kingdom is like. It is God's rule. It is his authority working itself out in the lives of his people. The kingdom is present whenever God exercises his kingly power and wherever people honor and serve him. Jesus had been preaching the kingdom ever since he began his public ministry, and now the apostles are to preach the same message, proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. The kingdom is not something to be established maybe thousands of years from now when Jesus returns. The kingdom of God was established when Jesus came the first time. He is the king. And he came, and so the kingdom came with him, because the kingdom is present wherever God rules. And so this is what the disciples are going out to preach. They went out and they taught the Beatitudes. They went out and they taught the parable of the soils. They went out and they taught the parable of the lamp and the parable of the debtors. And before you think to yourself, well, Couldn't they come up with their own material? Let me remind you that whenever I step into this pulpit, I'm doing essentially the same thing. I'm opening God's word. I'm proclaiming to you what God has already said. That's the job of a preacher. You find nothing terribly original from me. And for that, you ought to be thankful. Because in and of myself, I've got nothing for you. Luke uses precisely this word, by the way. He says that they proclaimed the kingdom of God. And that's just the right word for it. This is probably the most common biblical word used to describe the preaching ministry. It has its origins in the royal court where a herald would go out with a message from the king and he would announce that message or that decree that had been handed down. 
If you've been with us on Wednesday nights in our uh, study of Esther, you'll remember that there were various decrees that were sent throughout the empire, which at that time stretched from what is now Pakistan down to Ethiopia. So these decrees would go all over the empire. And first there was that decree instituted by evil Haman that all the Jews were to be slaughtered and their possessions plundered. And then there was the counter-decree issued in the name of the king by Mordecai, declaring the Jews were free to band together to protect themselves on that day when the pogrom was supposed to take place. And as you read that account, it becomes clear that pretty much everyone in the empire ends up knowing about both of these decrees. Well, how does that happen? There was no PNN, Persian News Network. No NPR, National Persian Radio. No postal service. No email. No automated call centers. What a blessing that must have been. How did everyone know? Heralds. The decrees weren't personally sent to everybody in the empire. There was no way to do that. They were sent to the governors of each province, and he gave the message to heralds. And the heralds would go out into the public square and they would proclaim that message publicly. And after that, it's simply word of mouth. And in a similar way, the apostles went out as gospel heralds to announce the coming of Christ as king. But that was only half of their mission. Jesus sent them out not only to proclaim the kingdom, but also to heal, we're told. Now, once again, we need to slow down and think. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself, why? Why did Jesus send them out, not only to preach, but also to heal? Is it just a matter of wanting his disciples to do something nice? Do something good for people? Well, Sure, I mean, that's part of it. We're supposed to do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. But there's more going on here than that. Often we'll hear those who are correctly trying to warn us against the charlatans who seek to pass themselves off as faith healers by saying, yes, and if they've got the power to heal, they ought to go into the hospitals and just empty the places out. And I understand what they're trying to say with that, but I never thought that was a very good argument to make. People need to be warned about those who make these claims, but I've never thought that particular argument is a valid one, primarily because Jesus didn't heal everybody that he came in contact with. Just consider what we saw last week in regard to the woman who touched the fringe of his cloak. Jesus was about to make his way to Jairus' house, because Jairus' daughter was sick, when a woman in the crowd touched the fringe of his cloak and was healed. 
and we rightfully focus on that woman. But what about the rest of the crowd? If you were to read through the Gospels, it's interesting to note just how often the purpose of the crowds is revealed. And the crowds do often have a purpose for being there. Why does a crowd gather? Why are they there? Primarily two reasons. It's to hear Jesus teach and to be healed. Luke 5.15. The news about him was spreading even farther. And large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. I got kind of carried away with this question this week. And I went through all four Gospels and looked at every instance in which there is a description given of the crowds which followed Jesus. And not in every case, but in many cases, this is what you find. You have a statement concerning why the crowds were there. And it's always this, to hear Jesus teach and to be healed. But what did we see last week? The crowds have gathered, they're pressing in upon Jesus, but not everyone who touches Jesus is healed. Remember Peter's response when Jesus asks, who touched me? And Peter's like, everybody's touching you, Jesus. But not everybody was healed. When we get to Luke 11, we'll hear Jesus rebuking the crowds because all they really want are miracles. He says in verse 29 of Luke 11, as the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign. Sign is just another word for miracle. And then Jesus says, no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah. Reference to his resurrection, of course. But along with the crowd's desire for healing, here's something else that you find. Jesus does not heal everyone. You see that in Luke 8, as we just saw, but you see it elsewhere as well. You see this in the first chapter of Mark, for instance. Mark chapter 1, begin with verse 29, we read this. Immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her, and he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases, and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak, because they knew who he was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went away to a secluded place, and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, Everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go somewhere else, to towns nearby, so that I can preach there. For that is what I came for. 
The disciples think they have found the key to a successful ministry. Jesus, everybody's looking for you. Come on, keep healing. That's what's bringing the crowds. And Jesus said, let's go someplace where they haven't heard about the healings yet so I can preach. That's what I came to do. You see how this working out in the book of Acts as well. In Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, uh, you see there a man who was lame from birth. And Peter and John come walking by. And he's, he's out there by the gate of the temple. And when you read through the account, we're told that there are those who bring him to that place Every day. And Peter and John come by and say, I don't have silver or gold. What we do have, we give to you in the name of Jesus, the Nazarene. Get up and walk. Now here's the thing. If he's a grown man who has been lame from birth and he was taken and set down every day by the gate of that temple to beg alms of those entering the temple, then Jesus saw this man and did not heal him. So if Jesus didn't heal just for the sake of healing, then what other purpose did he have? He healed because his miracles authenticated his message. His miracles proved that what he said was true. The kingdom of God had come. The kingdom of God has come upon you, Jesus proclaimed. And the evidence of that is that he healed. Christ had arrived as king to redeem People from the curse of the fall. He had come to save people, body and soul, delivering them from death and disease. He cared for people's physical needs. He had the power to make them whole. And that's why miracles are always connected to proclamation. They never stand on their own. The same was true in the ministry of the apostles. In the book of Acts, Mere healing is connected with proclamation. They are the evidence that the proclamation is true. And what's the proclamation? The proclamation was that which he commissioned the apostles to proclaim. The kingdom of God has come. The apostolic proclamation was the same. And miracles accompanied the proclamation. And the gospel of his kingdom is still spreading today through the church. Together we are called to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. We proclaim the apostolic message of the cross and the empty tomb, announcing that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, sinners can be forgiven. They can receive eternal life. That's our first and fundamental calling. But we are also called to minister to people's material needs as well as their spiritual needs, but not apart from the proclamation. 
but in order to confirm the truth of what we proclaim, that God loves and he ministers through his people, and we desire to do that. How do people know that we're telling the truth about salvation, especially when they can't see Jesus in person? People don't typically know this by our miracles, but rather we confirm the truth by our love and our suffering and the sacrificial way we care for people's needs. We're called to a ministry of both word and deed. We do these things because Jesus did them. And we do them because meeting people's needs helps to confirm the truth of the message we proclaim. God heals today. He heals through doctors and medicine, and he heals miraculously when he so chooses. He doesn't heal through healers, per se, not like... The apostles healed, not like Jesus healed. You see someone talking about healing today, what you need to do is go back and compare what they claim to be miraculous healing with what was happening in the scripture. And typically you'll find it doesn't bear any resemblance to it. But God can heal and we pray for healing. We understand that. James tells us that if you're sick, call for the elders to pray for you. Confess your sin. And pray for healing. We do that. But whether God heals miraculously on his own accord or not, we do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. And we demonstrate the truth of the proclamation in word and deed. Now, the apostles had a twofold mission. And they were given power and authority to fulfill it. He called the twelve together, gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. But to carry out that mission, they also needed to know how. So Jesus gave them a special set of instructions. Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. Stay and leave from the same house. Rather than moving from house to house, always searching for better lodgings, they were supposed to be content with what God had provided. Reminds me of some pastors. They're always looking for the bigger church. (laughs) The disciples were to take nothing with them, but were to go out dependent upon God to meet their needs. Rather than relying on their own resources, the apostles had to entrust themselves entirely to God's providential care. And in this way, they would learn to trust God for everything. You can see how they're being prepared for what's coming later, after the resurrection, after the ascension, when the apostles would be going out through the world. These people who had never left Israel before. From time to time, some Christians have concluded that every missionary ought to travel in the same way. Not taking any supplies, never asking for money, and that's a good example of bad exegesis. 
To begin with, Jesus gave these instructions specifically to his disciples, but never to the rest of the church. In fact, Jesus later told the disciples to do almost exactly the opposite. At the end of the Last Supper, he said, But now, whoever has a money belt is to take it along, and likewise a bag. He also mentions a sword in there. So not even the apostles lived this way all the time. There is more than one way to trust God for your provision. More than one godly way to gain the support that is necessary for the work of missions. Whether it's whether one is speaking about men like Hudson Taylor and George Mueller who simply prayed and trusted God to provide, or whether one speaks of the vast majority of missionaries throughout the history of the church, starting, by the way, with Paul and Barnabas, who were supported by the churches that send them out, God provides for his people, though he may do it in different ways. He certainly provided the apostles with what they needed. He gave them power and authority for ministry. He met their daily needs. He enabled them to carry out their mission, taking the good news of the kingdom into all the surrounding communities, as we read in verse 6. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everyone everywhere. And this was an important step in their ministry training, but it's also, an important, it's also important for another reason. The gospel they preached was a matter of spiritual life or death. Which is the same reason we preach the gospel today. When Jesus gave the apostles their instructions, he obviously attached special importance to the way people responded to the gospel Some would receive the good news by faith. They would welcome the apostles into their homes. They would believe the gospel of the kingdom. But others would not even give them basic hospitality. This was more than bad manners. It was a rejection of God and the gospel. Remember, the apostles were representatives of Jesus. To reject them was to reject Christ himself. And Jesus told the disciples what to do when people rejected him. As for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. That was a gesture of public rebuke. In effect, the apostles were to reject that town in the same way that town had rejected Christ. Shaking dust off their feet was a sign that people in that community were outside the kingdom of God. Because these people rejected the apostles, they were cut off. Same thing happens whenever we preach the gospel today. We proclaim the forgiveness of sins and the free gift of eternal life through the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And people will respond to that message in different ways. If you haven't yet read Joe's email about our evangelistic team's outreach in Larchmont yesterday, I encourage you to do that. It's a perfect example of what we're seeing here. The gospel is proclaimed and there is always a response. Even if someone claims to be indifferent, that is a response. It's a response of rejection. 
Some people believe the gospel and are saved. Others reject it to their own condemnation. But either way, the gospel clarifies one's condition. It shows where they really stand spiritually. One of the people that Joe spoke to yesterday claimed to be a believer and was angry that they were out preaching the gospel to people. Put that together if you can. There's one explanation for that. She wasn't a believer. She had no idea what the gospel was about. Or she would have rejoiced that there were people there trying to, to tell her neighbors how they could have eternal life and escape the wrath of God. It is our responsibility to do what the apostles did. To proclaim the kingdom of God. But once they hear it, it's their responsibility to believe. Or to be lost forever. We are to be the watchmen on the wall. In Ezekiel, we... We read that we are watchmen, and if we fulfill our responsibility to warn about the dangers that are coming, then the blood of others is not on our hands. We did our job. And now it's up to them to respond to that message. But if, as the watchmen... We keep our mouths shut and do not warn people about the dangers to come. Then their blood is on us. We have not fulfilled the responsibility which God has given to us. It's a striking example of how one man responded to the gospel at the end of this passage. It's the example of Herod. This was Herod Antipas the son of Herod the Great, who had sought to have Jesus killed when he was a baby. Luke tells us in verse 7 and 8 that Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. So it's pretty clear that everybody all over Galilee was talking about what Jesus and his disciples were doing. Everyone in Israel was talking about the Savior. And they were talking amongst themselves and wondering who Jesus might be. You'll remember a similar conversation taking place between Jesus and his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And people had different opinions. Some thought he was John the Baptist. Some thought he was Elijah. Some thought he was another of the prophets. Well, Herod didn't know either. Herod was wondering. Herod was getting a little bit concerned. Because Herod seemed to remember, I killed John. I took his head. What if this 
is John come back? Herod doesn't know what to think. I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? This is the first time, by the way, that Luke mentions that John is dead. Last we heard about John the Baptist from Luke, he was still in prison. He was in Herod's jail. But now Herod is both frightened and curious. He wants to see Jesus, which that in itself gets my attention. Because I look at preachers today, and so many of them are so desirous of being accepted in the halls of power. They long to receive those invitations. The governor wants to meet with me. The president wants to see me. Herod kept trying to see Jesus. And what we understand from that is that Jesus couldn't be bothered. He had far more important things to do than to sit down for a meeting with Herod. Whatever Herod's reasons for wanting to see Jesus, he was asking the right question. It's the ultimate question that we each have to answer for ourselves. Who is Jesus? Your eternity depends upon your answer to that question. Who is Jesus? If we do not receive him by faith, then we are rejecting him. And if we reject him, he will reject us. This is true even when we express some passing interest in him. Herod was interested in Jesus. He was not about to bow before Jesus. And that's what Jesus demands. Herod wanted to meet him. Herod wanted to know more about him. Herod never trusted him for salvation, obviously. He handed him over to the Romans to be crucified. It takes more than idle curiosity for someone to come to know Jesus Christ. It takes repentance and faith. Faith that he is the Son of God. Faith that he is the Savior of sinners. Faith that he was the substitute for sinners who took upon himself the penalty of sin when he went to the cross. Faith that he rose again from the dead. Again, a miracle which is the evidence of the proclamation. We need to do more than just take a look at Jesus. There was an old song back in the early 70s, right? Some of you were around then. You remember the Jesus movement? There was this early Christian, what they called Christian rock then, called Why Don't You Look Into Jesus? As if it's an option. Yeah, okay, so, you know, you're looking at Buddha and, you know, Hinduism and all these. Just add Jesus to the list. That's not how the gospel is proclaimed. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is Lord and Savior. 
and he demands obedience to his gospel. He demands repentance, and he demands faith, and he will not simply be another option tacked on to the end of the list. We need to do more than take a look at Jesus. We need to come to the proper conclusion about him. And once we do, we will want other people to know him as well. We will go everywhere in the power of the Spirit and the authority of his name to preach the gospel and to heal people with the love of Christ in body and in spirit. The call to the disciples is our call today. Proclaim the kingdom of God and heal all in the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for this mission that you have given to us. The Great Commission. To take the gospel throughout the world and to make disciples. Father, we pray that you would work through us. Prepare us as you prepared the disciples to be effective servants of yours, reliant only upon the power of your spirit to accomplish your purposes. For Christ's sake, Father, we ask these things. Amen.